This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, you're very welcome to another episode, and with Easter just days away, it will, like last year, be a very different Easter. Amid the grind of COVID, though, we're all clinging, I suppose, to those rituals. They are reassuring a sign of normality in abnormal times. Now, personally, I've managed to keep reasonably close eye on my alcohol consumption during lockdown, but chocolate... No way. It's gone off the charts. And my waistline is fast bearing testament to the loss of this personal discipline. And I really think I'm not probably the only one. If you go and visit any petrol garage anywhere near you, you'll see all the chocolate special offers are piled up inside the door. We are definitely a nation of chocoholics, it would seem. But as Easter looms into view, it is that kind of thing that's very evocative. Childhood, comfort, the home. The Easter egg itself, it's so evocative of a particular experience in our lives. So today's episode is probably less podcast and more chockcast, as we have an Easter conversation with the CEO of Skellig's Chocolate, Colm Healy, who runs an amazing chocolate-making business from the Kerry Gaeltacht in the town of Ballin Skellig's. And uh, let me tell you first, before I bring in Colm into our conversation a little bit about him, he moved from an IT background into the food industry after spending four years in Asia and a year in Australia to be a bit closer, as he says himself, to the mammy. He's worked for over 30 years in many different industries. And at Skelligs, which he took over in 2004, he's developed a business which really has gone from a tiny, small entity based in two rooms to a modern 10,000-foot custom-built factory. An unfortunate electrical fire occurred in 2010, but it destroyed the building, but not the business. And it actually has spurred him on to develop the current food tourism business they have today at the factory. It actually managed pre-COVID, to attract over 75,000 visitors to the site down in Kerry. And he is also UCD Smurfit MSc graduate to boot. You're very welcome to Business Impact, Colin. Thank you very much, Emmett. How, I don't know how to follow that intro. Well, I thought you were going to be a Kerry man, so I would have to <laughs> slightly alter my introduction there. But you actually are a Dubliner based in Kerry, and we'll come on to a little bit about your personal background in a few minutes. But first of all, let's let's get started with the kind of the obvious question, but why chocolate and why Kerry? Oh, great that you start with an easy one, Emmett. Um, <laughs> I suppose I'm a serial business person. I, I'm not sure I qualify as an entrepreneur, but for the last 30 years, I've worked in various different industries. And I suppose I firmly believe that with regard to the majority of businesses, there's a business and there's the running of a business. And thankfully, in general, I can run most businesses. After coming back from Australia, I came to visit my sister in Kerry. I was looking for something to do. She said, the chocolate factory is for sale. I went down, I remember it, August 2004. And it was, it was weird. It was eerie. Sun shining, people coming in, coming out with bags and smiling. And I thought to myself, there's something about this. So literally one month later, I owned Skellig Chocolate. I probably paid more than I should have but less than it was worth. And 16 years later, I'm I'm still trying to prove that that's correct. And was there anything with chocolate before that as a child or growing up? Or did you eat chocolate? Had you an interest in the industry? Or was it something slightly different than that? 
I always like to challenge myself, Emmett, and no background in food, purely business. And what I discovered after buying the business, how sociable an industry it is, I purely looked at it as an as another business, another industry, and I wanted to have a try at it. So it was a steep learning curve in that regard, but it has been an incredible journey to date. And what a lot of people listening may not realize is Ireland actually has a, a very story tradition in chocolate making. I mean, we've had a lot of the biggest global companies based here. We know there are various Irish brands, which... Colm, I'm sure you don't want me to mention <laughs> in this particular podcast, but we know the names. So we've actually, as a country, punched above our weight, no pun intended, in the chocolate industry. So, so was that part of your story at all or was it just purely coincidental? Purely coincidental. And, and in fairness, Emmett, like you, you, you're mentioning companies and there are, there's wonderful ones. Butlers who've been around for a long time, Lily O'Brien's, like all of these, they're competitors, but do you know what? It's a big enough pie for everybody, thank God. And Ireland in general has an incredible name overseas as well as domestically for food production. And that obviously has to go down to Borbia, doing an incredible job with the, with the branding and letting people know Ireland is a food country. So, so that's been a great assistance to us. Now, you've got two businesses rolled into one. You've got a chocolate making business, which is self-evident what that is. But you've got a more interesting piece, which is a tourist business. Can you just walk me through the company, what it does, what you make, just, just the, the sort of the scope and scale of the business? So primarily, we started out making chocolate, going to shops, seeing if people would take what we made. And then we noticed, even though it's a rural location, People were knocking on the door saying, oh, you made chocolate. Can I buy some? Can I taste some? And this evolved into a proper tourism business where we pivoted and we set up a, a counter for people to come in. We let them taste what we were making and, and we sold to them. And this naturally evolved into an online business a couple of years later where visitors from the States had visited would come back via email in September, October. Oh, we'd like to get some for Christmas. And we saw the potential. And this really helped take out what is, for a lot of people, uh, natural seasonalities. So it's really busy in the run-up to Easter. Traditionally, it gets quiet over the summer. And then from September onwards, it's really busy for Christmas. So having this tourist element from April to September really helped our business. So we, we in essence... We're becoming multi-channel before we knew what multi-channel was. And in terms of the chocolate you produce, are we talking bars, eggs? Can you just run us through the kind of the range you offer? We try and have something for everyone. And I know in business, that's not necessarily the ideal route to go through. But in essence, you've got your white chocolate, milk chocolate, dark chocolate. And then we look at flavorings moldings. So you can have bars, you can have novelties, you can have truffles, you can have customized made chocolate. So within reason, if you're looking for something in chocolate, it is possible for us to make it. And when you started off, I mean, was there any part where you kind of paused and said, hang on a second here, you know, as I've mentioned in my introduction, we're surrounded by mountains of chocolate wherever you look, visually, etc. I'm going up here against the Nestle's, I'm going up here against the Cadbury's, or did you say to yourself, yeah, they're all out there, but I can see a little gap they've left open. So how did you kind of view the kind of industry you're entering in terms of the possibilities from your point of view? I think this could be one of those ignorance is bliss type situations. <laughs> 
where, you know, when you look back on a project and people say to you after four years, well, if you'd have known then what it was going to be like, would you have done it? And I'm not sure. I didn't look at the competition. If I draw on the value of the MSC, if I looked beforehand, our competition was the main players and that was it. But now I look at it and say, well, potentially everything you can spend your disposable income on, flowers, a gift voucher, a meal out, they're all competition because we're in gifting. So I had to say to myself, can we offer something that other people can't? And when you look at the combination of our backdrop, you will never find the words industrial and estate in our address. When you look at the fact that you can see the chocolate being made in front of you, visitors can engage with chocolate makers. We help develop a relationship. So some of the stores that I inherited when I bought the business, like Avoca Hand Weavers, we still have today. And we've developed a much broader range of outlets we sell. We manage to sell chocolates all over the world. So thankfully, people are going away from, I suppose, more standard traditional chocolate to better quality chocolate. And in that regard, the pie is increasing. There is room for everybody. And what do you think of phrases like when you hear them, artisan chocolate? Does that mean anything to you or do you kind of think that's like a a fad type thing? It does mean something to me because I know what artisan means, where unfortunately a lot of marketing departments throw it in as as a branding exercise, as opposed to being genuine with what it should stand for. So it's, it's smaller batches. It really should only be stuff made with locally sourced ingredients. Now, naturally, cocoa beans don't grow in Ireland, so, so that isn't possible in that regard. The beauty for what we do is we're not afraid of people coming in and seeing our production. It's all open. It's all available. And people have said to me, God, you can't let people see the machinery. You can't let. I said, why? There's programs like How It's Made that everybody loves seeing how umbrellas are really weird things. Golf balls are made. Why would they not want to see this? And it also validates that we hand make what we do. It is done in small batches. You can visit under normal circumstances, just rock up, see what's been made, taste it. I don't think there's anything more genuine than that. No, and the, the transparency is, it, it fits with the whole sustainability and, and letting people really see what goes into a product. So you're very current in the way you've done that and the theme that you've set out. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the physical location of the factory in the town of Bellingskelligs. I understand the population is about 300, give or take. A lot of people think it's associated with the Skellig Islands, which it is a little bit, but not really. When I was heading up this interview, I was thinking Star Wars. I was thinking all of these things. But you don't think that's that important for the growth and promotion of the area. You think the Wild Atlantic Way is actually is, is the one that's really kind of dragged the town up and, and possibly dragged your own company up as well. It has definitely helped. Now, going back to the, the rural nature of where we are, like we are fortunate that from the factory have direct line of sight to Skellig Michael. So, so we are able to use that hand on heart. But to address the ruralness of it, I think the best way of explaining it is an example. Somebody once at the counter said, oh, my God, you're in the middle of nowhere. And a member of staff returned, no, sir, we're in the center of the universe. So it's, it's very much perception. We, we don't think that we're rural. We're blessed to live and work in such a beautiful place. We're in the heart of the dark skies for Kerry. We look out over the ocean. And I think we don't want to delve into COVID just yet, but what the last year has shown is 
you can remote you can remote work so you don't have to be stuck in big urban areas so we have turned what some people would regard as almost a flaw oh my god you're so remote into an asset you have a sense of discovery when you turn the corner and you find us people are so unexpectedly joyous like wow you're here it's a big modern facility i come and see I didn't think it would be here. So already we're getting positivity from them that we don't expect. And Colm, in terms of the, the hard-nosed business rationales, can you walk me through both sides of the ledger about having the location that you do have? Absolutely. On the negative, we're, we're at the end of the line. So if there's a power cut or an issue with any service, we're, we're probably going to get affected. But technologies have improved. I remember starting with dial-up broadband when I was first here, but now we're on 500 meg fiber optic. We can get product anywhere in Ireland, usually within 48 hours, mostly within 24 hours because necessity has developed very good courier links. We can ship a pallet to Dublin in 24 hours. We can ship a pallet to London in 48 hours. So from that aspect, it's not as bad as it used to be perceived. And on the positive Overheads are lower. We're not paying urban Dublin, Cork, Galway prices for anything. So in that regard, our cost base is low. The ability to ship product is equal to anybody else. And thankfully, we, we have an ambient product that's not short dated. We're not, we're not selling milk. We're not selling scones that have a one day shelf life. So in that regard, there's no real issue to where we're located. Yeah, and, and, and you, you, you do wonder why we've struggled so much in this country over the decades. Obviously, it was a lot different back in the 50s or 60s. We didn't have broadband. Um, but you do still hear a lot of people saying, you know, creating jobs in regional Ireland is very difficult. But you, you seem to have done it. I mean, can you bring us up to speed on the kind of employment you're providing down there? Absolutely. And for this, credit has to go to a scheme from Udris Nagueltukta 25-odd years ago where they developed small work sheds, buildings, craft centres along the West Coast to help businesses start off. So Skellig Chocolate started in one of these units and has developed from a team of three people, six people, to we have over 20 full-time staff, which goes up to about 33 during the summer when we have a cafe. And all of these people live locally. Nobody lives more than about a 20-minute drive. So naturally, the drive is beautiful every day as well. And there's no issues with traffic. You're not worried, oh, it's raining. Will it be worse today or not on the roads? So in that regard, we're very fortunate and it's not an issue. In terms of then raw materials and your inputs, where are they coming in from? And do they play into that whole kind of logistical challenge or again is there is there, is there pretty much straight smooth um, reactions and solutions to those problems i suppose the the evil twins of the last 12 months brexit and covid are, are the ones who who have played somewhat of a, a, a bit of havoc with supply chain up to that there wasn't an issue for us the majority of our cocoa comes from belgium obviously from africa predominantly but it hadn't been an issue other raw materials we used we we used Irish where possible, but always our mantra was to use the best. And we had efficient supply chain working really smoothly for us. The joys of Brexit more so nearly than, than COVID has delayed 
transport where they use England as a land bridge. But nothing has been stopped. It just has been delayed. So we just have to restructure our lead times. So it hasn't, it hasn't been too bad. And is the cocoa that's coming into you going to other sort of buyers at other chocolate facilities? Or is it just coming down to you specifically? Are you, as you said earlier, at the last line on the, on the, the train, almost the last station? Are you getting specific deliveries that are just for you and they aren't going anywhere else? The raw materials that will come to us from a chocolate perspective, some are chocolate that will be used by other companies, some is bespoke to ourselves. But thankfully, we, we use enough volume that we would deal directly with these companies and the deliveries would be specific to us. And in terms of the milk, I mean, you, you're in one of the, <laughs> you're not too far from the, well, you are quite a distance, but in some senses, you're not too far from some of the most fertile land in Ireland. I mean, do, do you source locally from the milk point of view? We do. And it makes me smile because some, sometimes we like to have fun with some of our visitors. So around us are fields with cows in it. And the mix of cows, there's lightly coloured, there's milk coloured and there's dark coloured cows. So we tell people that the white milk comes from the, the light coloured cows and the, <laughs> the milk chocolate from the, the middle coloured and the, the dark chocolates from the dark cows. And they want to believe. <laughs> and in terms of the other thing that really intrigues me is since COVID has come in, you were saying earlier that the visiting the factory was a pivotal part. It was not just a money spinner, but actually getting people to see how the product is made enhances the actual association they have then with the product going going beyond that. Then after they leave, as you say, and jump back into the car. COVID has brought an end to that. So, so can you just describe to me the effects on your business of, of that sort of segment of it being taken away? Okay, so I'm sure everybody is 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 COVID tired at this stage, but for us, like everybody else, it was a shock. And over 50% of our business was done on site. And as, as we said, over 75,000 visitors in 2019. But this is where that relationship paid off. So o- over the previous four years, we'd have had over 200,000 people who would have been through our doors. So once the visitor aspect stopped, they went online or they went to our retail partners. And where visitor numbers fell off to zero, our online sales doubled, trebled, quadrupled. So we were really blessed that we had a presence online. We had great retail partners throughout the country who were able to ring us and say, you know, people are coming looking for your products. Can we have more? And I I think the the government has really done a great job in providing the grants, the small grants to help companies get online in the last year. We we have really benefited from that. While there has been a drop to our turnover, it could have been an awful lot worse if we were in a different industry. So we have been very lucky with regard to it. And to be honest with you, Emmett, at this stage, we've stopped thinking about the negative aspects of COVID. We're looking to the future. There is an end in sight. I know it, it, it seems tough with the numbers each day at the moment, but vaccines are coming. They are starting to work. And there is a future that we have to prepare for, which is post-COVID. There's people with money burning a hole in their pocket, and we need to hold on and have a good quality product. Not just us, every industry in Ireland needs to be ready for this deluge of customers who are looking to spend their money. And one of the things you, you can really shed a bit of light on for us, Colm, is, is we've always debated over the years, we being anyone involved in business, you know, looking at it or being a participant, is how important is the Irish label? How important is 
you know, buying local, you know, it's obviously something everyone tips their cap at. Other people say, ultimately, it's really only about price and quality and where it originates from doesn't matter. So that whole home advantage, you know, local industry promotion, you've been there, right? You're producing an Irish made product. You can tell me a little bit about how much you trade on that, or maybe you don't trade on it. You can give me some sense of, you know, how big that is. But what's your kind of sense of how important in this particular year we're in at the moment is being an Irish produced product to Irish consumers. Like, how, how important do you think it actually is? I think the difficulty for me a year ago was I had my blinkers on and I was just making chocolate, selling chocolate and repeat, where all of a sudden people were coming to us and saying, this year we're buying Irish. We're making sure we're buying Irish. And this is replicated by many, many people I know who have businesses nearly one of the first two comments out of their mouth is, well, this year we're buying Irish. So we haven't dialed up the Irishness. It was always there for us, but we're a lot happier to comment on, you know, you're buying from a small local Irish business. We employ local people. You're helping pay mortgages, helping service car loans. And people are feeling a lot happier about themselves that they know their money is going to Irish businesses in a tough year. So they're more than happy to support it. Now, don't get me wrong. You, you can't throw any rubbish at people. They're still discerning consumers and they expect a very good quality product. But definitely people are much more open to buying Irish. We're also members of Origin Green, which is a Borbee initiative. And that has been something we're quite happy to champion. It's showing that sustainability is something that we're looking at improving all the time. And this is something that our more discerning consumers are asking the tough questions about. What's the provenance of the cocoa? How are you giving back to the community? So all of these aspects are, are changing, I think, forever how businesses will have to work in Ireland. And you were mentioning earlier the the visitations, the tourism part, that that helped to kind of smooth out your, your revenue during the year. You know, when there was quieter periods, you had people visiting. Uh, now we're coming to Easter. It's only a few days away from when people will be listening to this podcast that we're recording today, this chockcast, as I call it. I mean, how important is the Easter period for you? It's obviously very important, but is, is it just an absolute mountain compared to the rest of the year? Or is it just kind of a, a kind of a good period and then we settle down? So can you just give me an idea of the, the, the sort of the pattern of your business during the year? We traditionally don't really worry about Valentine's Day. I think Valentine's Day is like a, a two-day event and that's it. And the bigger companies have it very much wrapped up. But Easter is our whole focus from the end of the previous year right up to Easter Day. Irish people seem to have really embraced Easter and we, it is a huge part of our business. It's definitely the first quarter is just Easter. What can we do to, to have something different, a bit of novelty, but also to traditional stuff? Because after that, there is a lull in the end of April and May. Normally, you know, the tourist business will 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 pick that up. And then from September for ourselves, we're smaller. So from September onwards, it's another big push into Christmas. So for us, I cannot stress, Easter is really, really important. And let's talk customers, Colin. Who's eating chocolate? We all are is the short answer, but there's obviously uh, trends below that subtrend. So, I mean, who's getting the eggs? Is it children? Is it parents? Is it men? Is it women? Who's eating the, the chocolate that you produce? 
That's that's a really interesting one because the customer basis is really becoming very diverse. And in that way, we've had to up our game with regard to what we offer. We would have been a traditional milk chocolate, almost plain flavors, hazelnut, strawberry and champagne. But in the last couple of years, people are looking for more plant-based. So the vegan options, less sugar, various flavor combinations. As people traveled much more extensively over the last number of years, they've brought back a want chili and pink pepper. They want something that they've had in Mexico or in Asia, and they expect to be able to find it here. So we're finding that there's a a core of discerning shoppers is our customer base. It's people who want quality product at an affordable price with a little bit of a point of difference. We've got to be something that is both acceptable to eat at home and great as a gift. And in terms of price then, um, your chili and pink pepper, I have to say, never heard of chili and pink pepper, but you've certainly intrigued me. I'm going to have to get one of those. But in terms of price point, I mean, everything you're saying, I'm getting a sense that you're you're not competing down in the commoditized part of the market where it's just three three for the price of one, pile the stuff up. I mentioned them in the intro inside the petrol garage. It seems to be a big channel for selling that kind of um, offer. You're in a different place. So how do you calibrate where you're going to put your price? I mean, how do you know, look, we're, we're actually getting ourselves a bit ahead of ourselves here. We're moving beyond what the market can bear. But equally, how do you make sure you don't drop down too low and enter into that shark pit where all those kind of cheaper commoditized big global corporates are existing? So how do you sort of pitch yourself into that, dare I say, sweet spot? Um, yes, the sweet spot. And hopefully it stays sweet. I suppose we, first of all, realized we can't compete on price. If you're looking for the lowest price, somebody will come in a cent cheaper than you, five cent cheaper than you, and it's just not worth it. So we we looked at our market. We looked at giving value for money. And I, I, I think the conversation is repeatedly around price and not value. We know we don't appeal to everybody. But what we're trying to do is to make sure there's enough people who understand that the quality of product that we make is worth spending the money on. And this goes back to the fact that people under normal circumstances can come and see us. They see the work that goes into making our products. Uh, The guy who does our social media only recently was down doing some updated videos and one was wrapping an egg. And he couldn't believe what was involved in wrapping the egg. And he took a little video of it. And the problem is we assume because we know what's involved, everybody else does. So we need to explain better where the costs are going, why it's good quality. And I I would like to think at this stage that as a brand, Skellix Chocolate has some equity in it, that people will know we're not cheap. If you've bought a Skellix Chocolate product, somebody has thought about you and has made a concerted effort to give you a good gift. And in terms of the local area, obviously the people in the area are delighted to have you. You're a big provider of employment. It is a Gale Talk area. I know, uh, according to, for my research purposes, the amount of Irish language speakers who, you know, speak in Irish on a daily basis is about one in 10. I don't know whether you agree or disagree with that figure, but that's that's what's out there online, at least. Um, just talk to me a little bit about the, the presence your company has kind of had in the area and how local people have reacted to your arrival many years ago now. But like, you know, what, what's been going on at a local level between you and the local community? We 
we're amazed at the support that we have from the local community. They've really taken us from day one to their hearts. And when they have visitors, because as you just said, it is a rural area, a lot of kids didn't have the employment opportunities 20, 30 years ago, so they had to go off. But they're now coming back with their children to see the grandparents. And inevitably, every returning person's visit to South Kerry is go to the chocolate factory. They'll see it be made, they'll have the coffee, they'll relax, they'll look at the view. So we've really been taken to heart with them. I'm personally involved in Task Force Ivralic, which is a government-sanctioned pilot scheme to help reduce the immigration and to encourage people to look at South Kerry as a viable option for, for living. And I think the last year has really proven there's an opportunity for people to do this. And I'm delighted to say we're getting inquiries all the time from people who are saying, well, are the facilities there? Can I work from there? What's the lifestyle like? So people, even though it's rural, are seeing the benefits of it. The people here are very welcoming, not just to us, but to anybody who wants to make an effort living here. And finally, Colm, I have to finish with this one, and it's a, it's a difficult one for you because it's kind of personal, but bear with me. What are your ambitions for the business? Uh, you've mentioned the Butlers, you've mentioned the Lily O'Briens. There are three or four other ones out there as well. Where do you think you can take this? Or is it more of a case of just look, just go week to week and we'll see where it, it will take us rather than we take it? I mean, what what's your sense of where this business, how big can it be? How big should it become? Um, just give me a sense of what your personal horizons are with this wonderful business you have. That's a tricky one. Part of me says, I can't tell you because then they'd all know. <laughs> but any business who is just coasting along going week to week shouldn't be in business. You've got to have the ambition and the drive. We, we see great potential online. It has just exploded for us. And I suppose one of our core things, we've set ourselves a challenge to be the number one online brand of chocolate in Ireland for Ireland. Then it's a case of exports. The UK is, is, is probably off, off the radar for a couple of years until that all settles down. And we'll be looking at Europe. And our first destination will be Germany, where they, they, they have a, a sweet tooth. They're not afraid of spending on items that they perceive as good value. So it's constant evolution. Because we are smaller and in a lot of ways more lean and agile, it's looking at that pivot, looking at where is an opportunity for us to, to develop what we are doing what we can do well. The difficulty, Emmett, honestly, is not what should we do. It's it's how do we rein back the enthusiasm we have to do so many different things. Well, I really like that idea of, of, of a Dubliner in Kerry selling chili and pink pepper Easter eggs to Germans. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You've got all the elements. It's a natural. It sounds like a, a novel or something like that. It's fantastic to see it. And good luck in the next few days with your Easter sales. I'm sure most of them are already in the bag. But nevertheless, I wish you the best. Hope it's a busy period for you. We'll talk to you again. It's been a very interesting conversation. Best of luck to you and the business down there at Balling and Skellix. Thank you very much.